Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com All of their red ink is really our black ink. Last week, when we learned of the problems of the banks and the impact they could have on jobs of small businesses and banking system overall, I instructed my team to act quickly to protect these interests. Buy long-term securities, you drive up their price, you drive down their yield. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we know that central banks think that if they keep on pushing up interest rates, the economy will suffer so much that we'll stop buying stuff, and that's going to eventually bring prices down. But it's also pushing up mortgage rates and rent and adding to the hurt of people on lower income. So when rate rises are finished, do we come out of it with a wider rich-poor gap? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. So who loses when interest rates go up? Well, obviously, first of all, anyone with a mortgage, uh, maybe homeowners who've paid off their mortgage might see their home value go down as well. So they lose. Uh, Anyone with any sort of debt, obviously, because they've got to pay off that debt. Uh, I guess startup businesses wanting a loan, for example, are going to find the cost of those loans is uh, is too expensive. But the plan is from central banks to suppress spending, to cool down the economy. That's why they're doing it. So that I guess the, the thinking is that demand will match supply. Prices will find their natural level. That's what they're thinking rather than prices careering upwards. But it's not working, is it? Not yet, really, anyway, because uh, there's this risk that U.S. interest rates will get up to 6% or more. The fixed 30-year mortgage in the U.S. is already around 7% compared to 4% just before the pandemic. Uh, Americans could be seeing the highest mortgage rates this century with house prices way higher than they have been, uh, even adjusting for inflation. (coughs) So uh, in amongst all of this, Steve... Hmm. With all these interest rates going up, who is actually winning in this environment? Nobody, frankly. Um, we've got far too high level of private debt. This is the, the issue. Interest rates wouldn't matter as much if it wasn't for the incredibly high level of private debt. And that's, you know, I've been on this bandwagon. That's why I, my, my flight site, debtdeflation.com, was all about the dangers of too much private debt. And that, main, again, mainstream economists ignore the role of private debt because of a fallacious theory in which private debt doesn't matter, doesn't affect the economic system. And consequently, we've got a level of private debt, like in household cases, which is households carrying, in terms of the the debt to GDP ratio the households have now globally, it's roughly five times what it was in the 60s. Mm. So what we've had is an incredible growth in the power of the financial sector by enabling them to increase level of private debt. Uh, Interest rates are a, a, a tricky element of that because... Um, you know, we, we'd look at mortgage rates and say that you know they were th- two or three percent. They're now going up to seven or eight percent. But large slabs of the population are paying rates of twenty and thirty percent for credit card debt and other forms of payday lending and and stuff like that. So it isn't interest rates are a problem because private debt is too high. Interest rates we've got low 
because we let private debt get too high during the bubble, and policymakers, without knowing why, were forced to reduce interest rates. And now you know, the, the, the only control mechanism they think they have is putting interest rates up uh, for inflation. Inflation is rising up, go rates, and people are being squeezed by a mistake which the policymakers have made for the last 30 years. People haven't really noticed, in, in, in one sense, too much private debt. But central banks would say that, you know, we, we look at this and we look at the people's ability to pay their mortgage mm. and we're not seeing yet any problem with that. People are managing to pay their mortgages off. We're not seeing stress happening yet. Mm. Uh, and we'll obviously keep an eye on it, is what they'd say. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I'm, I'm still having to have a good look at the credit data to see what's happening with rates of growth of private debt. But I, I can't see rates being held at this level, let alone rates rising, uh, with people still willing to take on more debt. Mm. So I've got a feeling we're going to see negative credit turning up, and that negative credit is what triggers a economic downturn. Right. So I, I think we, uh, the again because mainstream economists don't realise. So just uh, this, let's yeah. take that through yeah. step by step. Yeah. Then, so I get very worried about my mortgage. I just pay off my debt faster. Yeah. That's what and you say. pay your debt off, you destroy money. Yeah. And with less money in circulation, less economic activity, so the economy slows down. This is the debt deflation. Yeah. So there's less money. I've also got less disposable income because yeah. I'm paying off my debts faster. Therefore, I'm buying less stuff yeah. as well. So it's a double whammy. Yeah. You effect, can't you it? can't pay your debt down without consuming less. Mm. You know. Um, so you you and what do we then have? But, the, a sh- but then the central banks supply. But the central banks would say, well, you beauty. That's exactly what we were trying to do. We were trying to get that it, demand the thing down. Is it has far more wham than they think because, like in, mm. in their models, their their mental model, uh, lending is an interpersonal thing. So you mm. know, Phil lends to Steve, or Steve lends to Phil. Um, and so, so let's say I get a loan from you. You can spend less. I can spend more. Yeah. Okay? And then I repay you back. You can spend more. I can spend less. So they they see a balancing item. To quote that genius, the winner of the stupid prize in economics, uh, Ben Bernanke, uh, absent and plausibly large differences in marginal propensities to spend between groups, it was suggested pure redistribution should have no significant macroeconomic effects. Quote, unquote, page 20, I think, of his um, essays on the Great Depression. Right. No, Bullshit. Not acknowledging that that, that l- banks lot of create money. money. Okay. Yeah. So, so, it, so, okay, so yeah. there's an overshoot effect, is yeah. what you're saying, yeah. isn't it? So, so well, if yeah. I, if because I, they don't misunderstand the mechanism, there have been an overshoot in private debt. Debt. Right. So I, uh, I, I'm worried about rising uh, interest rates. Therefore, I think, OK, I've got to pay off my debts faster. I mm. spend less. Uh, and those, those debts are down. I'm, I'm wounded by the fact that interest rates have gone up so high. Yeah. I've destroyed that money by paying it back to, to the bank. Mm. Uh, I'm not going to suddenly... And therefore, there's an aggregate income effect, which they're not expecting. Yeah. So the central banks think they can put rates up and not have a, a great deal of impact on aggregate demand because people paying interest... Uh, can consume less, but people receiving interest can consume more. They see a balancing item. Instead, when you have destruction of money by paying that debt down, then you have a slump. Mm. So what happens is the the wham the, the wham of an interest rate rise is much bigger than they expect on the real economy, and that's what I'm you know I'm still thinking. If they continue putting rates up, then we're going to see a recession uh, caused by negative credit. Right. which they don't think negative credit has any impact at all. 
Right. So for that, the, so that argument about is there going to be a recession or not from all these high interest rates, it seems like more likely than I not. I think, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm on the camp of saying, OK, if they keep the rates as high as they are, then we're likely to see negative credit growth. Negative credit growth reduces aggregate demand and aggregate income. And how quickly does that, uh, how long does that stay? Because I have paid back my debt because I'm worried about rising interest rates. The economy then tanks. Mm. I'm not going to take on a new loan or expand, expand my loan because I'm worried about the state of the economy. I'm worried about my job. I'm worried about uh, my future. So I want to keep that level down. So there's not going to be a creation of money again through loans for quite yeah. some time. And that's what that's what happened back in the financial crisis in 2008. That's what happened. Mm. So you had, if you look at the level of uh, the rate of change of private debt, was positive. Uh, all the way from the 1945 to 2007. So if you look in every every year, there's raise, you know, booms and slumps in, in how much new debt was created uh, all the way out to 2007, but it never went negative. And then you went from a peak level of credit being 15% of GDP. So the change in private debt that year was 15, equivalent to 15% of GDP, minus five by the depths of the downturn. So what I expect is a similar, nothing like the same scale, um, but something of the, you know, a fall in credit demand, say from, of the order of say 8% of GDP, maybe 10% down to maybe two or three, and that will cause a recession, but not a crisis like 2008. If it goes negative, then yeah, we're back in crisis territory. So I mentioned a, 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 a couple of podcasts ago how uh, Elizabeth Warren had given uh, Jerome Powell a bit of a, a hard time when Jerome Powell was giving his uh, uh, testimony to the Senate Banking Committee uh, in the US recently. Uh, and she, one of the questions she asked was, you know, if if your job by raising these these interest rates is to cool the employment numbers, and she pointed out by his own numbers, two million extra people were going to lose their jobs according to their own forecasts. Uh, what impact would that have on the economy and on those people? This is have a listen to what she said. I think she was fantastic uh, in this testimony. Here she is and- having a go at him. Putting two million people out of work is just part of the cost, and they just have to bear it. Will the will will working people be better off if if we just walk away from our jobs and and inflation remains well, five six percent? Let me ask you about what happens if you do this. Since the end of World War II, there have been twelve times in which the unemployment rate has increased by one percentage point within one year. Exactly what you're aiming to do right now. How many of those times? Did the U.S. economy avoid falling into a recession? You know, it's it's not as black and white as it very just very looking at the numbers. It actually yeah, no, is no. pretty black. Alan Bliner's written a book on this. And, there have and, been twelve times that yeah. we've seen a one point increase in the unemployment in the unemployment rate in a year. That's exactly what your Fed report has put out as the projection and the plan based on how you're going to keep raising these interest rates. How many times did the economy fail to fall into a recession after doing that out of 12 times? I think the number is zero. I think the number is zero. That's exactly right. So, uh, I mean, so it's a clear consequence of, yeah. of what they're doing. If you, you throw a lot of people out of work, then... Cause a recession. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For, which is a different reason to the reason you've been giving, but it just adds to it, doesn't it? You know, the the, the, yeah. the unemployment aspect of it is, yeah, yeah. less. So what, actually, what we've got is less money because people are 
paying down, down their debt mm. and also less people working and so uh, so less less spending coming from that as well she went on to make the point that when unemployment starts to rise the fed's got a a, a bad track record of trying to stop that growth mm. in unemployment mm. as well so in 11 of the 12 times when employment, unemployment rose by a full percentage point, the unemployment rate went on to rise by another full percentage point after that as well, because they can't stop it, because mm-hmm. there's a steamroll effect, isn't there? Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you have a, a collapse in money-driven demand, and we're fundamentally this a monetary economy. So if you're reducing the level of money creation, uh, you're going to cause aggregate demand to fall. And uh, you know, it, it's uh, it's it's every time it's the workers who are paying the cost of it as well, mm. uh, and that was in some ways justifiable if you look back in the sixties and seventies when there was bargaining power for workers, and that was part of where the inflationary spiral came from, boom economy stuff. But we we haven't been in that now for thirty years, so it's it's. And so this particular boom is caused by excessive markups on on uh, production costs by the manufacturing firms. Right. It's not the workers who are causing it. Well, some people would argue, though, that you know those the, the ability to be able to do that uh, is is going to disappear uh, if you start to see a downturn in the economy. So we're already we've seen that you know the, the Nasdaq down what twelve percent um, over the last twelve months. Uh, because you know, there's this uncertainty about where the economy is going and whether companies are going to be able to uh, yeah. to do that. Yeah. You know, to actually uh, boost prices unrealistically more than you know than the market's going to bear. So, the, so, the, so it could be that you know the, the the rich are going to lose out as well out of all of this. It's not just the poor. Yeah, uh, it, I mean, a slump brings brings everybody down, um, and a slump. You know, when you look at it in terms of the cycles uh, in the Goodwin model, which is the my mental framework for looking at cycles in income and distribution, uh, the boom is cut off by workers getting a larger share of GDP. Now they're not getting that. We're getting we what we're seeing is a rising amount going to the financial sector, and I would rather be reducing the amount going to the financial sector, uh, and then improving the amount of money going to workers and and businesses, capitalists, uh, rather than going to the finance sector. Well, the, finance, the financial sector gets far too much money. It's, it's a cost of business. It's not a, not a profit center. And I'd rather be reducing their power. And you won't do it by putting interest rates up. You do it by reducing levels of private debt. So again, I come back to a debt jubilee as my pr- primary, primary solution for trying to get out of this quandary are in. And if we continue regarding them as the elephant in the room we don't talk about, we'll continue being stuck in this predicament. But how does that solve where we are now? So if, mm. if all of a sudden I don't have any debt... Your I, spending capacity goes through the roof. Yeah. Okay. And, but that you, would be inflationary, wouldn't it? It's... Yeah, and this is the, and then the, the, and the and Fed the, is going to go. Well, okay, energy, we need to put, we need but, to put but interest rates up to try and stop your spending. Be partly if you if you, you partly like for people the, the the working poor, and that's something like forty percent of the population these days. Uh, they can finally be the working. They can survive. They can if they if their debt if the cost of debt the amount of money you've got to devote to debt service goes down that much, then that's a form of freedom. They don't need to ask for the wage rises. 
okay, because the costs of paying the interest bills they face decline. It's the finance sector, which is the vampire in this situation. Right, but that's a one-off. So if you did a debt... A one-off, it's a pretty damn big one. It is a big... Well, and it would be hugely inflationary, wouldn't it? Because there'd be all this... Not if if it... See, a large part of the pressure for inflation, and Michael Hudson makes this case too, comes out of people needing to service debt. Okay, you can't afford not to get a wage rise. If you don't get the wage rise, you can't pay your mortgage. Right. Now, if you reduce the cost of the mortgage, you can live on the current wage. But we know it's not wages that are driving inflation, though, because the yeah, wage be, levels be, are... Be, what you're worried about is, the, is the, the, the dynamics of people being squeezed, feeding through into wage rises and maintaining a, a spiral in inflation. If you take the finance sector out, you drop the cost of production dramatically. Mm. And again, Michael makes this case very well. He says that one of the major reasons that the East... It was cheaper than the West for production was because rents and and the cost of land was lower. And now that's now being con- per- perverted and converted by the globalisation, the boom that that's caused, particularly in China, but also other parts of Southeast Asia. But a large part of their lower cost was simply lower costs of finance. Mm. So what we have to do is focus on the finance sector. The finance is the vampire in this system. We ha- And if you want to reduce their power, you've got to reduce the level of debt. And most of the debt that they've got us into is unproductive debt. It's not debt for you know, capitalists inventing new production technologies or new goods and services. It's debt to boost asset prices, particularly houses and shares. And the higher cost doesn't mean they're better to live in. So if you uh, lived in a world where to live within close proximity to London, because that's where you work, Uh uh, and you've got a couple of kids, you'd need to, you know, the, the idea that you'd need to spend not three quarters of a million for a house. You could buy a house for a quarter of a million, for uh-huh. for for example. You wouldn't have the same mortgage debt. Yep. Therefore, you wouldn't demand as high a wage. Therefore, uh-huh. we could produce stuff in the UK, which would be highly competitive with the stuff that we've had to outsource overseas yep. because we're spending so much trying to pay our mortgage yeah. on a house, which is actually money to the finance sector. That's what you're saying. Yeah. So it comes back to the letting the finance sector get to be too big. Mm. And one of my favourite phrases of all time is from Marx, and um, I think it's in volume one of Capital. It might be volume three. Uh, talk about centralisation, the big um, uh, money lenders and the parasites that surround them uh, represent enormous centralisation. And occasionally that's these uh, parasites take over the production system and they know nothing about production and should have nothing to do with it. Dead right. You've got and, and a huge part of the pressures we're feeling. We've got workers fighting capitalists, and it's actually the bankers who are the problem. Right. Okay. When we come back, let's get back to that central question about who wins and who loses when when interest rates go up. Yeah. And is it is it just the poor, or do the do the rich feel it yeah. as well? Maybe they do, but maybe not to the to, to the to the yeah. same extent. And is there a way? Of actually, you know, balancing that out, and are interest rates the instrument, or if not, what do we what do we use? We'll look at all of that when we come back on the debunking economics podcast. Back in a second. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So, Steve, I want to, I read a study, uh, or I, I agreed, it's probably a bit of a, I, I, glanced, I looked at, I saw, I saw the, exactly, I saw the cover of a study uh, by Imperial College Business School, which looked at the impact of interest rates by looking at tax records of the entire Danish population. Obviously, you can get a lot of information in Denmark, didn't realise mm. this. They looked at three decades, 70 million uh, individual observations from 1987 to 2014. They looked at salaries, they looked at share dividends, they looked at deposits, the individual levels stock values, house prices, spending, and put it all into a model, which I'm sure you'd find fault with. Mm. Uh, but anyway, sounds reasonably complex. Uh, their conclusion that if there's a 1% drop in interest rates, it boosted the incomes of those at the top, the top earners, by 5% over two years, whilst the lowest earners saw just a half percent increase in their living standards. So that's dropping interest rates. Those mm. in the middle saw an increase of 1.5% in their income. So a 1% drop over two years boosted the value of assets, such as property, by 20% of disposable income amongst poorer families, but by 75% for those at the top of the scale. So lower rates have a larger impact on the value of assets than they do on disposable income, is what they're saying, and the mm. wealthier have more financial and real assets. So that that that's the problem, isn't it? In amongst all of this, it's, it comes back to it's the not financial. income; it's wealth, isn't it? Really, yeah. And it comes back to again a, a huge part of the wealth of the of the ultra the, the ultra wealthy in the, the banking sector comes mm. the amount of debt they've been allowed to create. Mm. So it's too much private debt. I mean, like in terms of the level of re- reduction I want to see, uh, private debt is running of the order of 200% of GDP for most economies around the world. I think it should be 50%. So I'd like to use a, you know, a mechanism that I have designed for a modern debt jubilee to use the government's capacity to create money to cancel 75% of private debt. We should never let it grow in the first place. Now, if, if you did that, then that would drastically reduce the power of the financial sector and the wealth of the financial sector, and that would be overall a dramatic increase in equality. Okay, it would be uh, it would benefit certainly the middle class that's taken on a lot of that property debt, but also the lo- the, the working class. So, to me, it's not the interest rates that matter; it's the level of private debt. You've got to get that down. If we don't get it down, then interest rates. Virtually anything you're going to do with interest rates are going to benefit the wealthy, not the poor. So if interest rates keep on rising as they as they seem to be, mm. uh, as central banks seem to have their eyes closed as to whether it's working or not. Although you know they could they could argue because obviously inflation inflation comes down anyway, doesn't it? You know it it's, it's, it can keep on rising, but the speed might slow down. Mm. But it's still rising 
But the moment the speed slows down, people seem to think that the situation is improving. But it's not. Prices are still increasing. They're just not in- increasing at the same rate as they were before. Mm. So 9% inflation seems like a good thing because it's not 10.5%. It's still 9% going up on top of the 10.5% it went up last year. And then it matters whether your incomes are going up as fast, and that becomes back to the income distribution issue again. Yeah. Like One of the most remarkable things that I found in building my model of Minsky's financial instability hypothesis uh, was that the impact of rising debt uh, didn't reduce the income of the capitalists. It reduced the income of the workers. And this is what the classic case of a, what's called a complex system. So you try to work out what's the logic of this. So what I, I did is just simply is a straight mathematical model. I had uh, the banking's, banks creating money, which was then used by capitalists to invest, uh, and then workers getting wages depending upon the level of employment. And... Workers did no borrowing in the modeling model whatsoever. So my expectation was that a rising level of, of, of bank income with rising level of debt would mean a fall amount of capitalist income. In fact, that's not what happened at all. The capitalist income tended to fluctuate around a, a median level. Uh, the, the rising, this is in the mathematical model, the rising level of bankers' income was matched by a falling level of workers' income. Now, the logic of that, uh, and it took me quite a while, there was, you know, I was surprised to see it. I wasn't expecting it. It's what they call an emergent property in a complex systems model. And I finally worked out what's going on. And that is, in fact, you can find the same logic in, in Marx. He said, if you live in a capitalist economy, it's driven by investment. Okay. Investment is motivated by the level of profit. So if you have a, a level of investment, a profit at which you invest just what your profits are, then that's, that's your median point. Above that point, you'll invest more than your profits so you want to borrow money. Below that level, invest less than profits so you pay off whatever your, some of your debt. So that meant that the investment level was the, the point that capitalists you know, were motivated by. Now, the, share, the profit rate depends upon the share of income going to capitalists. So that meant that, so let's say they happened with 20% level of income share going to them. The other 80%, they couldn't care whether it goes to workers or bankers. Now, if you have the dynamics such that the level of private debt is rising, then more than 80% is going towards the bankers than towards the workers. So a rising level of debt meant a falling workers' share. Right. Okay. So if you want to get workers' share up, you've got to reduce the amount going to bankers. It's not workers versus capitalists here. It's workers and capitalists versus bankers. The level of, if you, you, know, you can get a, a far fairer society and a far more vibrant society if you reduce the level of private debt. But so, do interest rates come into that at all? Well, so they, if they do if, because, because the, the, that's that's the income for bankers is, is income is basically level of debt times interest rate. Right. Okay. So they do better when interest rates are higher on that on that. On yeah. That yeah if they can also manage to persuade us to have high levels of debt. Now, the the, mm-hmm. back, the, the negative for them of rising rates is less willingness to take on debt. Right. So if you so if you've got workers who are not taking on any debt, and you've got a, a company that is uh, decides that it's going to borrow more mm. to expand quickly, uh, and it's going to pay high interest rates to do that, uh, then the, the basically the finance sector is getting a higher proportion because it's lending out the money, it's paying high, it's, yeah. it's getting high interest rates on it. The company is having to pay more of that, and therefore there's less money left over yeah. to pay the workers. It's, 
fundamentally what you're saying. Largely that, yeah. And like we, we, we tend to focus on the price, which is the interest rate, not looking at the quantity, which is the level of debt. Yeah. And in fact, that's, that's a mistake. The, the real cause of this dilemma is the high level of the high quantity side. We've got to get the quantity down, reduce the level of private debt. That will mean then the interest rate doesn't have the prominent impact that it has in the society right now. So like I, I looked at the Australian, because I was living in Australia when I was doing this work, living looking at the Australian data, it seemed that whenever debt service exceeded 8% of GDP, you'd go into a recession. And then when it got to 4%, you'd go back into a boom. Okay. So the rate of interest times the level of private debt. And the higher the level of private debt gets to be, the lower the rate of interest has to be to have that impact. As we squeeze ourselves into a corner by ignoring the level of private debt, letting it grow as much as the bankers wanted to create the debt, you got squeezed into a corner where a tiny change in the rate of interest now has a huge impact upon the economy. And that's because the part which the mainstream theory is ignoring, which is the level of private debt, has reached unsustainable levels of, you know, the debt ratio being of the order of 200% of GDP. And what's that debt doing? Pushing up asset prices. That's fundamentally well, it, what it's doing. If, it's if it's that, not if, creating anything. Right. Well, yeah, well, it, because that debt is being used to buy those assets, which are fundamental. Yeah. I mean, let's not mix words. It's houses in Australia's case. Fundamentally, yeah. And large. I yeah. Mean, okay, people investing in shares as well. But it's not the – so private debt is fine, surely. Growing private debt is good if it's creating money, which is being used for – productive purposes. You wouldn't want to stop that happening. But that's not what it's used for. I mean, the finance sector makes more money out of speculation than it makes out of investment. Mm. And it's easy, it's easy for the finance sector to say, okay, what's what do you want to borrow? We'll just check and see what the house prices are in your local region to say what you should be willing to borrow. That's brain-dead calculations. If you want to see sensible finance, then you want to have people saying, well, what's this idea you've got about producing a new form of widget? You know, mm. What's your car design? What piece of technology are you thinking about creating? Uh, and then you have to have intelligent people actually making decisions about whether that technology sounds like it's viable or not. So what about this then, given that we, you know, we started talking about interest rates, and I'm, I'm rather keen that we wrap up the episode by, I don't, I don't care where <laughs> we go in the middle, just as long as we finish where we started. Uh, but um, a, different, should... a different interest rate depending on the purpose of the borrowing. So if you are, if you are borrowing money for some productive purpose mm. that's not just asset inflation, we'll give you a better interest rate and we'll charge a higher interest rate, we'll try and control the interest rates, uh, central banks can, you know, can play between the two interest rates. Trying and to get that's the what we used to have back in the 50s. We had the idea of credit allocation. Uh, it was a common practice back in the 50s and early 60s for the central bank to say, we, we want a certain fraction of your loans to be for real estate, another fraction to be for um, working capital, et cetera, et cetera. And they would say, well, that's an invention in the free market. We can't have that. Mm. And what happens is the bank... central banks, say, I mean, just on that point, central banks, I mean, if, if pushing up interest rates to try and change behaviour isn't an intervention in the free market, I don't know what is. Exactly. So they, they've, they've hoist themselves in their own petard in this, uh, in this area. But again, it's having naive theories that don't include the, the fundamental drivers of the system has got us into a position where the, 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 the fundamental driver of the level of private debt has got to be far too high, and that's constraining what can be done. Right. And banks ended up not 
uh, lending money for productive investment, which is the vision that Schumpeter had of banks, but lend it for speculation and Ponzi schemes. And so the, the body which is supposed to be in charge of the financial sector and to ensure that it uh, that the payment system doesn't break down and that the payment that the money system is used to enhance the product productivity has enabled Ponzi schemes and the growth of a, of a finance sector that's far too big to occur. Right, but if 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 a central bank said, "Well, okay, we are very concerned about rising asset prices hmm. uh, and particularly uh, housing," hmm. so we are going to change the rate at which banks can charge for that type of loan. Hmm versus any other type of loan uh, will have different interest rates for each and they could be way different, that would be a positive step forward, wouldn't sort it? Sort of, but I still think the main thing is just to reduce the level of private debt. Bring it down. I mean, and private debt has to be an economic target in the same sense that the inflation rate and the employment rate are economic targets. No, but if you did that through a jubilee, that's just a one point in time. You're going to have the same, you know, unless you then you then you make you then you make it part of a policy objective. Mm. You don't you 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 you, uh, you worry you you like but at the moment it, they ignore it completely. Yeah, the private debt varies radically around the planet. It's, it's normally you know, the order of two hundred percent, but there are countries where it's fifty percent. Um, but fundamentally, you. Say, say we don't let private debt exceed 50% of GDP, for example. Right, but it depends on what it's being... Again, it, doesn't it get back to depending on what it's going to be used for? Yeah, so well, you, at the moment it's used for you know, property speculation. Yeah, exactly. So you, so you wouldn't mind... You could have more of it if it was used for more productive purposes because it would be helping yeah, well, the Yeah, well, luckily, the Japanese society, for example, had a high level of private debt because of the Karetsu system. So you'd have industrial agglomerates, you know, Mitsubishi, Mitsui, et cetera, et cetera, used to be household names, they're not anymore. Uh, but but they they were industrial agglomerates where a bank was effectively part of a community and it would then provide debt finance, which played the same role as equity finance would in America. So Japan had a historically much higher level of private debt, but most of that private debt was taken on by corporations and it was used to finance investment and working capital. And it worked very well up until the bubble economy began in 1980 when the deregulation and all the usual nonsense from the West was swallowed by Japanese economists and central bankers and they had this huge property speculation and share market speculation going on. Mm. So uh, it, it's when you let the finance sector fund asset price speculation it then takes over the economy and cripples it. So we know that you know those people who've invested heavily in shares are getting hurt by high interest rates. Mm. What we don't like is the fact that those high interest rates are also hurting those people at the bottom end of the scale. Yeah, which is why you know I'm talking about the the different some form of differential rate, where you could say, well, okay, we need to we need to stop this speculation because it's hurting the economy and it's soaking up too much money going into the finance sector. Mm. Let's push up rates way high there without it hurting the rest of the economy. Surely that's there's got to be a way that central banks can have a more nuanced role rather than this blunt stick where it's the same interest rate for well, everybody. Well, then, then, then what you'd be stuck with is, is the potential for people reducing their debt levels as the only way they can, which is by spending less, and you get caught in the debt deflationary trap again. So I would rather do it by government policy and say, let's create the money to cancel the private debt, reduce the private debt back down below the danger level. Because you're saying, how can we manage to keep the economy surviving at an unsustainable level of private debt? Mm. I'm sorry, I want to get the debt level Well, down. no, I mean, you could do what you're saying. I'm just saying, well, once you've done that, how do you make sure it doesn't go back there? It's, it, you know, so well, then, the- then, I mean, I, I put the controls, and this is what, when, when I suggested the idea of a debt jubilee, I also suggested limits on 
the capacity of banks to create money for speculation. So I'd limit the amount of money that can be borrowed to buy a house to some multiple of the income earning capacity of the house. Mm. Make it no more than say, like my factor is usually yeah. say 10 times. So consequently, you could never get mortgages at the level they are now compared to people's incomes uh, because people are borrowing money on the belief the house price is going to continue rising, uh, which is an absolute description of a Ponzi scheme. So based it instead on rental income or impute, real, actual imputed rental income, you wouldn't get the out of control levels of private debt for housing and people wouldn't be seeing housing as a as an asset. They'd be seeing it as a place to live, which is what we should be doing. All right, finishing off where we started with mm-hmm. interest rates. Yeah. So where are we going to end up given that it is hurting uh, lower income uh, households uh, and anyone with a mortgage that's finding that they're going to have to sell their house perhaps to because they can't afford to um, uh, realize their mortgage payments anymore mm. um, how far are they going to go how far, um, how do central banks get out of this how do they come back and go oh actually you might have made a mistake there it looks like the economy is tanking and, uh, and we, well, it hasn't been well, it, it, it could be. It could be the. I mean, I'm no fan of the cryptocurrency mob, as you know. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it could be a, a time to have a lot of fun watching the dilemmas that central banks have got themselves into by first of all ignoring private debt, and then in ignoring asset speculation and actually enhancing asset prices. They've got themselves in a hell of a tight corner. And uh, if they have a tanking economy while inflation is still high. They're going to face a two-way choice. Do we drop the interest rates and fear that inflation is going to rise? I think I'd be wrong on that front. Uh, but that's what they might find, find themselves being caught in a theoretical quandary, which will have practical impacts upon the rest of us. And some soul-searching for them. So if they did, Soul? Uh, uh, sorry. souls, have they? Well, they oh. don't. I said they're searching. I didn't say they were going to find it. They okay, might okay, be looking okay. for it. So if... Um, Maybe uh, they're going to buy one at Kmart. So if they, so, and if they stop pushing inflation, interest rates up. It's mm. going to make no difference to inflation whatsoever. That's that's your read on it. Yeah. No, it's got no relation to it. It's two separate factors. It, it, inflation, it, it, this is one I think Blair's work is extremely useful. Uh, inflation pushes interest rates. It's, it's inflation controls the interest rate, not vice versa. So it's, it's not a control mechanism for prices. It can cause, you can cause a, a, a crash, which is what Wachler caused when he put rates up that high, he caused a recession, and, it, and you crush the power of of workers to ask for wage demands and you crush the power of... of uh, Which is what they're trying to do. Energy yeah, producers to, to get high prices for energy as well. But like that last one, uh, you can only crush it so high. If it's actually costing a large amount of money to get net energy out, then energy prices are going to rise no matter what. And that's why I think we're going to be stuck with inflation. Right, on that... Ha- happy note, Happy again. note again, here Why we go again. Why do you people again. tune in? It'll be miserable. I'm not sure. Maybe we'll be seeing the, We'll be seeing the numbers where you can hear my voice and any, anywhere you want, not not just here. Uh, but, yeah, okay, there we are. You'll, we're just uh, we're going to see those numbers drift down, Steve. You, you, you gotta, you, yeah, you've got to... That's all be, my fault, yeah, yeah. But the one thing is deflating is our audience. <laughs> exactly, yeah. All right, as the interest, as the level of interest from the listeners falls. Oh, dear, falls. my God, yeah. okay, we're dying yeah. on a pun, people. Yeah. I've got to get out. Here. All right, cool. Catch you next week. Bye. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.